0: This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak to all kinds of great entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. This episode is brought to you by Unbound Merino, offering versatile, high performance and sustainable clothing that is antibacterial and odor resistant. Go to unboundmarino.com to learn more, that's unboundmerino.com. So since the pandemic began, we've seen a crazy run-up in the markets in just 12 months, where stocks plunged back in March, only to come roaring back. Many stocks now are trading at all-time highs, and equity investors in general have done quite well. Interestingly, though, the pandemic has also given other asset classes their moment in time, including the luxury watch market, which we talk about in depth today with Bradley Taylor, previously of Birchall and Taylor before becoming a purely independent watchmaker, producing beautiful timepieces under his own name. In this in-depth conversation, Brad and I touch on his origin story, heading overseas to watchmaking school in Switzerland, where he spent three years learning the craft before cutting his teeth professionally, earning certifications from Patek, Philippe, and Hublot. We also dive into his experience producing the highly successful Reference One series with Birchall and Taylor, and the circumstances surrounding the pandemic that forced his company to shut its doors. The creation of the next series, the Paragon, under his new company, Bradley Taylor, and the latest Hodinkee article where the watch was featured, which led to huge publicity and sales. We also discussed the current frenzy that is the secondary watch market and the driving forces behind why this asset class is so hot. The big three among brands, Patek, Audemars Piguet, and Vacheron Constantin. Rolex, of course, and a myriad of other incredible independents that we should be paying attention to, and way, way more. So with that intro out of the way, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with watchmaker Bradley Taylor. Okay, so let's rewind back to beginning of 2020. Give me a sense of what you were doing, what your life was like, and Birchell and Taylor, the company you were running.
1: Yeah, so we had just moved into a new workshop, um, although still quite small for most watchmaking companies, and it was 2000 square feet. Things were going quite well. We had quite a bit of success at that point. We had sold approximately 35 watches, and that's the reference
0: one, this move into the 2000 square foot space. Was this on the back of the success with that model?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. At, th- at this point, we weren't profitable, like we weren't taking a salary yet. But we figured, you know, a new watch business is not exactly a, a business that immediately starts creating dividends. You know, it's a it, it's a build. People have to recognize a brand. And then also see it a bunch to become comfortable with it because our main customer is someone who's shopping for, let's say, like a Patek Philippe and then recognizes that, oh, there's something interesting being made in Canada and I can go see what they're doing and and meet the guys behind it. So how do you get
0: Birchall and Taylor's models in front of those buyers? Are you going to Baselworld? Like, how are you getting your reference one in front of the right people?
1: If we wanted to be in World, which obviously we, we would have, and I remember I contacted them about it once, the, the cost to actually have a small space is incredibly high to the tune of five figures, mid five figures for a week space, for a very small booth. Wow. The, the, the big brands there are paying a uh, million, two million francs just to be there for a week. And they have these big elaborate spaces that themselves cost a lot of money. But you can imagine as a small brand, uh, if you go, you go and don't get a booth and you hope to meet with some journalists to get your your work out there. For us, it was partially word of mouth, which is very challenging when you first start out. And then uh, getting in front of journalists and hoping that they found what we're doing interesting enough to write about. We have a good article come out in one of the big watch publications. We would sell five or six pieces that week. The marketplace has changed a lot for watches. I think if people knew how many of the watches that I just made, I sold purely through Instagram, not advertising, but just posting photos of the watches, I think most people would be pretty surprised to find out that people are willing to take that risk on a watch they've never seen before, just heard about, uh, that is priced at, you know, it's not a a cheap watch. I mean, I I can't afford it. Uh, My most recent series is uh, 22,000 US dollars, so about 28,000 Canadian to do that purely off of photos online is um, it's interesting.
0: This is the Paragon right at 22,000 um, the current series. How many are
1: you producing
0: in a year? Uh,
1: so I've cut this series off at 12 pieces and, and are they all sold. Uh, I have one left at this point.
0: Okay. So let's rewind back just a sec. Cause we, we skipped over this part. So you have the success with reference one, you sell 35 plus pieces. You move into this 2000 square foot space and then the pandemic hits. What happens? Like, did you think about
1: turning, turning it in for good and doing something else career wise? So for a while, we, we held on, we held on to as lo- for as long as we possibly could. And, um, there was a certain point where things were just slowing down too much. And we had a few important orders canceled at the start of the pandemic. And of course, uh, the rent unfortunately doesn't stop. Uh, I think that's an important lesson that I learned um, that we both learned from that, which is, you know, until you really, really need a larger space, keep it lean, like as as long as you possibly can, because you can't predict the future, especially in a new company. Growth is not always consistent. We would have spurts. And then, you know, it, it just takes one thing, which, you know, life is unpredictable. And the pandemic happened. Thankfully, we didn't just start a restaurant. but If we had been in a smaller space, it's much more likely we would have been able to weather everything.
0: You make a personal move, right? You move from Toronto to Vancouver on the other side of the country. And then rather than turn it in, you start watchmaking yourself under your own personal name, Bradley Taylor. And then the launch of the Paragon happens right in January. How did you come to that decision that you were going to still... Continue watchmaking now without a partner, now on the other side of the country and producing um, a second series that was essentially double the price of the first.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a, a strange and it still is. I'm on the tail end of like what was a very wild uh, three or four months of my life. And so I, I arrived in Vancouver and I, I was kind of figuring out like what I was going to do because I've invested so much time and energy into watchmaking. Um, and I hadn't really been rewarded at that point. Uh, the problem with watchmaking is, you know, you go to school, it's very expensive, um, at least the route that I went, going to Switzerland. And you come back and, and the best job you can get pays around, you know, $50,000 at a school a year. I spent as much on my education as my, my partner did, and, and she's a lawyer. You know, th- th- and those things reward themselves very differently. So at, at that point, I was I was had dealt with all the stress and all the challenges of of saying goodbye to all the work that I would put into the company. And I was ready to sell my tools, which are things I've been collecting for such a long time that are really important to me. And one of my friends just said, just wait a month like you'll be back. At the time, I didn't believe him. But within about three weeks, I um I sat down back on my watch making bench and I was just kind of realizing like, oh, I, I do still love this. This is still what I want to do with my life. And I've spent such a long time designing the next watch, uh, the Paragon. It would like I, I have to see how it goes. And, and and part part of me thought, Maybe I'll sell none and or maybe I'll sell one or two and realize this isn't worth it and I'll get a job doing something else. Like I'll find something else. But I gave it that shot. It was very scary releasing a product into the world that you spend so much time designing is always a kind of a harrowing experience, especially with uh, the way online comments work on some of the watch blogs. But they were very kind to of me this time around, and I managed to get an incredible amount of publicity just reaching out to some journalists that I know and and through social media. So I've, I've now been featured on the top five watch publications. And that's, uh, of course, a huge factor in my success so far. Yeah. One of those publications is Hodinkee, which uh,
0: you were featured in just last month, which is probably the most popular watch website in the world right now. They released a piece on you featuring the Paragon and you personally as a Canadian watchmaker. So what happens after this piece is published on Hodinkee?
1: Yeah. So uh, to give you an idea, last time we had a he's published on Birchall and Taylor, we sold five watches within the next 24 hours. And with this, it's obviously a different story. Um, The amount of work that's involved in the Paragon, and there's a few really key elements about it that are incredibly time consuming to produce. Just to give you an idea, each individual hand of the watch takes 20 hours uh, to finish by hand. A $10,000 watch is a very different purchase than a $28,000 watch. So it took a bit more time for things to kind of roll in, but I had a lot of my emails were that were coming in rapidly and uh, I ended up selling like a, a pretty good amount of watches to to readers of that article.
0: Hmm. Um, speaking of these features, so yeah, you didn't make it easy on yourself. So the, the brigade <laughs> typeface, in addition to the beautifully designed, and it is beautifully designed, purple hands, as I understand it, this purple color takes way more time to produce or to create
1: than just going with a blue, for example. Yeah, exactly. So there's, if you want to imagine there's like a band, um, like let's say we just had a, a strip of steel and we heated it from one side. You'd watch the steel change color as the heat travels down it. There'd be a nice large blue patch. And that's what a lot of manufacturers do and watchmakers do. They, they, they blew the steel. It's beautiful. I, I love it. It looks very nice. But then there's a very small section that gets this really rich purple. And with tempering, you can't go back. The only way to go back is to polish off that oxide layer that the heat creates to make that color. It takes about a week and a half to two weeks to get a set of hands done.
0: Well, just give me a sense. How much, how much time, how many man hours does it take to produce one paragon?
1: I don't have an exact idea on that. Um, It takes me about two to three weeks to to get one done because I I do work with a lot of um, uh, partners in Switzerland that create some of the components. For example, I don't have a machine shop. Um, The movement is created for me by a company called Vosche, who create the movements for Parmigiani, Richard Mille, Hermes, and a couple other companies. You've
0: seen the numbers. I mean, you get published on Hodinkee and four other publications Every time a publication is released, you sell four, five, six pieces. So if you ultimately wanted to sell um, 60 paragons in a year, how could you make that happen? And would quality be sacrificed in any way?
1: Yeah. So the number one thing is that quality can't be sacrificed. In this industry, uh, that's the beginning of the end. The number one thing that I stand by my watch. This is the quality of everything involved. And to do that, you have to hire watchmakers and you have to have standards for every different part of production. You have to make sure the people working on it are happy and motivated and you have to expand slowly. I wanted to ask you about your origins of um,
0: getting into this whole world. So how did you get into watchmaking and figure out, okay, this is not only a passion, it's not only something I like, but it's a potential career path.
1: So I was studying business administration with a focus in marketing in college, and I had spent my whole childhood working with my hands, whether it was wood or making things out of concrete or taking things apart. I had taken apart a watch, uh, a pretty cheap mechanical watch that I had bought when I was in college, and I just couldn't believe the beauty uh, that was within the movement. And I, I couldn't believe anything could be so small and so intricate. And yet accurate, too, and timekeeping. Because even if a watch is off by a minute a day, uh, it's still like 99.999% accurate. So to to see anything made to that level and that scale, um, I mean, I recall it was the first time I ever used the word beautiful and really meant it. And from then on, I I applied to a bunch of different schools. Um, There were a couple in the U.S. that were interested. And then there was one in Switzerland that wanted me to come for a bench test, which is where... For 21 days, they tested my dexterity, my ability to learn, and if I also a chance for me to see if I was committed and really wanted to do this. So for 21 days, they would give me different tasks, whether it's bending these tiny springs to specific shapes or uh, filing brass to within five hundredths of a millimeter of the drawing that they give me. Uh, and and I found out a few months later that they accepted me, and and then I spent the next three years of my life basically, uh, in Switzerland in a tiny town there. But it was an experience that was incredible, uh, to say the least. The bench test. So you mentioned dexterity as one
0: criteria that they're evaluating you on. What are some of the other criteria that make
1: for a good watchmaker? What the industry wants you to do generally is to learn how to diagnose problems, In an efficient manner, and then replace components when they wear out or they're broken. That's where the majority of the work is. That's where, if your Rolex stops working and you send it in, that's the kind of work that's done to it. Um, And that's what is widely demanded among the industry. What I like doing is creating parts, I like designing things and creating things. So I was very fortunate. The school that I chose specifically was geared towards that. And I actually got to machine by hand a lot of really critical components that make up a watch movement. But by and large, what the industry will ask of watchmakers and the schools that they create for watchmakers is very different. But you earn certifications from both Patek, Philippe and
0: Hublot, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, so what is involved in getting certified in this regard and how do these accolades impact your career going forward?
1: Yeah. So. Um, a Patek Philippe certification takes about, it uh, takes one month in Geneva, um, in the workshops of Patek Philippe and they will effectively watch over you while you work for a month with a clipboard and take notes. And they have the highest standards in the industry when it comes to cleanliness. So that has to do with, uh, like a tiny bit of dust in the watch or a tiny smudge, uh, from your hands, making it into the watch. um, and then also when it comes to tolerances of assembling new parts. So you're in a new environment, and I had no experience on any Patek Philippe product before, and it was very demanding. I managed to pass and get my certification, and it was likely one of the most challenging months of my life. But having that certification means that I came back to work uh, and was able to demand immediately, I think, a 30% raise, uh, because it's quite a rare certification. And then later I went to Hublot, which was not as intense of a certification, but it took about a week, just learning specific product knowledge. Basically, they don't want you to work on a watch without uh, understanding something that's very specific to that watch. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer and emotional intelligence coach and the host of Humanized with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electric as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electric
0: Patek Philippe is, you know, one... Company that's tossed around in the context of what they call the big three, the big three being A.P. Uh, Audemars Piguet, Vacheron Constantin, and, and Patek. So, what I find interesting about this is that Rolex, a company that everybody knows, and a brand that has a history of being an innovator and pioneer in the space. For example, GMT is the first watch to show two time zones. The Submariner was the first I watch to be waterproofed up to 200 meters. And I think, in fact, Rolex was credited with creating the first waterproof watch, period. Yes. Um. Yeah. So it's not, you know, when people talk about Rolex, they don't, you know, it's a premium brand, but it's not a brand that's typically talked about in the context of the big three. So what's your take on Rolex and why it's not a part of this elite club?
1: Yeah, the big three in general, I find I have some issues with it. I think the real value in watchmaking at this point is with independence. And of course, I'm biased because I am a small independent, but I will also happily recommend the myriad of other people doing something like me, whether they're more involved in manufacturing or not, because that's where I think there's actually still a passion for watchmaking with a lot of the big brands. I don't see that. I see Rolex collecting has become a frenzy because it's become a value thing. People are are trying to get Daytonas now or Submariners because they know if they get them from the authorized dealer, uh, they can sell them a week later and make 5000 dollars, sometimes sometimes more. For me, if that's what you want, you're not into watchmaking, and that's unfortunate in many ways. Like it's great that people are willing to put their money towards that, and it's great that watches have achieved this kind of strange status in today's world where I mean, if you could get, there's a lot of watches right now that if you could get them immediately from an authorized dealer, you could turn around the next day and make money on them, which is kind of bizarre. Yes. But the brands know that. Um, Rolex knows what's happening with the secondary market and the amount people are talking about it. And same with Audemars Piguet. If you can get your hands on a Royal Oak and steal right now, you will make money on it. Rolex, I mean, throughout its whole life has been a tool watch. And they're beautifully well, like they're very well made. The value you get in a Rolex, or at least you used to get with a Rolex is great. Like it's a very well engineered watch. They're beautiful to service as a watchmaker. Um, the, everything used on them is very well made. You know, there's very good support for after sales service, but it's it was never like a luxury product. It became that um, over the many years of really wonderful marketing and advertising, that Rolex has been doing, whether it's been finding athletes or up and coming stars in any profession and getting behind them early. But they've never, they were never like a true high end watchmaker. And Vacheron Constantine and Audemars Piguet and Patek Philippe have always kind of prided themselves on being those high level artisanal watchmakers. Of that group, is there one in particular that you admire more than the other? My favorite of. The Trinity, I suppose, would be Patek Philippe. But to be honest, the idea of the Trinity is, is too exclusive for me because I don't I think Patek Philippe would be the most interesting of them all mm-hmm. at this point in time. Historically, they are all wonderful. Uh, but I feel like a lot of them at this point are resting on their brands, especially when it comes to, like, for example, the finishing level of modern day Patek, which is nothing like it used to be. A 1950s Patek Calatrava versus the Calatrava of today is a whole completely different story, and this is well known among among collector communities, um, or at least it should be. But I do think there's a lot of smaller brands uh, that are doing some really cool stuff in Switzerland as well. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's talk about some of those smaller brands. Um, there's a couple of independents that I keep seeing in the zeitgeist. And you mentioned this idea of partnering with celebrities or athletes to benefit one's brand. Richard Mill, who you mentioned uh, a few moments ago, created a watch for Rafa Nadal that he wore. And I think that watch was estimated at something like $1.1 million, yeah. um, which is insane. F.P. Jorn is another name that comes to mind among the sort of top tier independents. Who else is worth mentioning here?
1: Yeah, and with Richard Mill... I am envious of his marketing and branding prowess, uh, but not of necessarily the quality of the watches. He came out with an incredibly high price point and it stuck, and he's found incredible success. So from a business perspective, I admire the company. From a watchmaking perspective, not necessarily as much. Where does FP Journe sit for you? Yeah, I think FP Journe is a really interesting company. Um, he's certainly more of like an engineering focused, especially with the resonance design. Not necessarily like a supremely well polished movement. He was never going for that. Uh, and then what you can see now is the demand for his watches. For example, I don't know the price now of one of his famous models, the Cartier Metro is insanely marked up now in the secondary market. You have examples like uh, one of the innovators in the industry, Philippe Dufour. Uh, his original, uh, uh, the Simplicity, his first kind of production watch that he sold, he made 200 of them. Uh, they were 60,000 francs, and there was one recently that went to auction that was actually just a reproduction of his series that he made for the anniversary, the 20-year anniversary. Um, I, I don't know the price off the top of my head, but I know it's, it's I think it's, I believe it's 2 point something million dollars. Just looking at some of the statistics
0: around F.P. Journe. So... They do a production of around 800 watches per year. And interestingly, 20% of the company was acquired by Chanel in 2018. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. What about other up and coming brands? Uh, Nomos, Hamilton, your work, if I said that correctly, Messina. Any of these strike you as brands we should be
1: expecting big things from? I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in watchmaking right now. And. Instead of maybe recommending specific brands to go after, i look for different qualities in those companies. And the number one quality, of course, it depends on your price point, right? Like if if you're shopping with a $5,000 price point, you're not going to get a hand-finished movement. That's not to say there's not a lot of interesting stuff at that price point. But the space that I think is the most interesting, which is where the hand-finishing exists and, and kind of novel designs and complications you're looking for the amount of time that was spent on the watch uh, by hand you want to purchase a watch that has had the most amount of time by someone actually polishing something there with diamond paste and pegwood or along those lines like artisanal input on the watch whether the dial has been done with guilloche like the engine turning or enamel uh, something that truly supports Uh, the artisans involved in the trade as opposed to um, just simply machined and machine polished, but the design is nice. Okay, so I'll put you back on the
0: spot then. Assuming you do have $5,000 to spend and you can develop a collection of up to three watches, you can purchase one, two or three watches. Where are you looking?
1: When it comes to companies, I'm probably most tempted to recommend Seiko. Seiko. Um, which would not be at the $5,000 price point, but, uh, more like the 500 to 1,000, just because I think they make a really good product for what you pay for it. Yeah, that's, that'd probably be my recommendation. I I can't think of a lot that I would really stand behind at that price point. And where does
0: Longay sit for you? This is a brand that has, you know, a, a pretty rich history um, founded in 1845, it's headquartered in Germany. It's obviously pretty hot in the secondary, as people know. Um, where does Lange sit for you?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting actually because on some of their models, you're completely correct, the secondary market's great. But on a lot of their models, it's not. To the point where you buy the watch and you, if you, it's not for you after you know a few months, then you take a hit of thirty percent. And again, this is not the way I believe collecting should be done. I think you should obviously take your time before you commit to a piece, and then make sure it satisfies everything you're looking for. Because it shouldn't. Your, your goal shouldn't be like, oh no, now I have to sell this and I'm losing money. But at the same time, of course, it's a consideration when you're spending a significant amount. Longe for me, if we talk about the Holy Trinity, Longe is certainly above. Uh, anything to do with that in terms of quality. What I really appreciate from long is that they have a consistent level of finishing throughout their models. So if you spend uh, six figures on the watch or you spend, I forget their entry level. Now it's probably around uh, 18 or 25,000 Canadian or so um, you get the same level of finishing, obviously not the same level of complexity and and total finishing time, but you do get a very high level of finish.
0: That's so interesting that, On certain models, um, it's pretty active. I would imagine that Longgate 1 is one of those models um, that's hot in the secondary, but others take a 30% hit, in in your opinion, given how much attention there is to the craftsmanship here. How does that 30% hit happen?
1: I don't know. I, I think it has to do with along the lines of the investment side that I personally try and stay far away from because it's a lot of speculation and with some of the aftermarket, like if you look at the price history for the Nautilus, for example, the Patek Philippe Nautilus, um, it's something I don't think I'll understand. For Lange, I think you're getting, in general, among all the large manufacturers of watches, the best value.
0: Where do smartwatches, Apple watches resonate for you, if they do resonate at
1: all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're definitely a tool to have. I've. I've definitely tried out Um, one of my friends gave me a Garmin and it's interesting, but I also, I already feel like I'm overstimulated in this world. I don't think I want to have another thing bothering me. I think there's not a significant impact or at least so far that we've seen when it comes to high end watchmaking. So a a person that was considering spending $10,000 on a watch before Is not going to say, oh, I'm going to wear my Apple watch instead uh, because that's going to satisfy the same desire. But what you will see and what we have been seeing so far in the industry is people who are considering buying a $500 watch or a thousand dollar watch have decided to just put that money towards a smartwatch.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with the intimidation factor. I mean, if you don't know this world and you're just curious and you have this desire to explore it, maybe put together a collection, it can be incredibly intimidating, and you know, like wine or or find cars or cigars. I don't know you people can draw parallels, but it's kind of hard to break in and feel confident in any purchase.
1: I agree hundred percent, and one of the biggest challenges is education, and it's been getting better and better every few months even just with more content coming out, um, whether that's from Hodinkee or any of the other large uh, publications. But the the number one thing is, I mean, even when I talk about hand finishing, very few people actually know what that looks like. And that to me is a problem because what you're investing in is by and large the quality of that hand finishing or the design of the movement. And it's very hard for someone who's not a watchmaker or really, really involved to know what that looks like. So of course they have to depend on articles and the brands themselves discussing why what they did is important. Um, but that obviously opens up avenues for you know people making purchases they regret because they find out what they were purchasing is not exactly so. I don't know if you've seen this or not, or you agree with this hypothesis, but I, I've seen a lot more
0: interest in the space over the course of the pandemic. People trying to use watches almost as a safe haven asset. Um, something that is tangible that they can
1: touch and feel, uh, feel like it has a store of value. It's a double edged sword a hundred percent because I mean, I watched a YouTube video, uh, with a watch dealer talking about taking off the plastic wrap from a Rolex and how that lowers the value so much. And for me, that just is absolute garbage. Like it, that's, that's not watchmaking, but I also understand as a consumer, of these kinds of things that that has value it's just a very bizarre concept because it's contrary to everything that i believe in watchmaking so it is it is very different than watchmaking to buy and not necessarily saying if you like rolex that you don't like watchmaking but i think there's a style of i don't want to say collecting either because it is investing and i think if you want to invest you should stay in the stock market or other assets not watches
0: I think, though, to play devil's advocate, you know, as as someone who invests, say, in in stocks and also has uh, a small collection of watches, I certainly get more enjoyment out of wearing a watch than I do from a stock. I can't use the stock. I can't (laughs) wear it. It doesn't add any value to my day-to-day life. And it's certainly not beautiful. You know, my mindset is, if you can go about it in a diligent way and make an educated investment, it becomes one of the most enjoyable investments that one can make, I think.
1: Yeah. And I understand that. I, th- I think because you get to enjoy it. I mean, there's definitely something to say that you could if you get your hands on a, even a used Rolex and you get an OK deal, you can wear it for five or 10 years and get that enjoyment. And if if it's really bad, you might lose a thousand bucks. So there's something to say about, okay, for a thousand bucks, I can wear a Rolex for five or 10 years and sell it after. And that's a pretty low cost for the amount of enjoyment. And it's very, it's much more likely you'll actually make money wearing that watch, which is a really bizarre concept. So I, I totally understand that. And I and I understand too, like if you're buying even like high end Patek Philippe is, I think a really interesting option. But when it becomes like, oh, I'm keeping it in the box and it's plastic and you never actually enjoy the watch, it becomes a very different thing. And and the watch is bought by someone else, and they keep it in the plastic. And it just becomes this very strange phenomenon.
0: You know, I was watching one of the episodes of Talking Watches recently, and this quote by Gary Steingart, I think is how you pronounce it, who's an author, said, quote, I think smartphone devices in our pockets have obliterated the need for almost anything else And I think of watches as a big FU to all of that, end quote. Go to bradleytaylor.ca for more on your work and obviously on the Paragon. And you've got one more that's for sale out of the 12.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, So users can contact you directly off of the website. Pleasure having you on, by the way. Forgot to ask you, what's next? I heard something about deconstructing a chronograph.
1: Yeah, so I'm working on, I'm likely going to have another model. Uh, in the same case that I've made for the Paragon. And then I'm working on, in the background, on a chronograph that I'm I'm taking a classical chronograph movement, considered by many to be one of the best ever made, and then I'm refinishing all of the components and making a couple new additions to it as well. So it's going to take between three to four months, at least, just to finish and polish the movement. Uh, So it's going to be a really big undertaking, and I'm really excited about it that's incredible it's going to basically be on pretty much a bespoke basis so i work with each client find out have some conversations and see like what design direction we want to go on especially with the dial uh the selection of finish choices on the movement um case material etc and then make a chronograph that's exactly to their tastes and then finished to an absolutely uh, incredible degree by the way i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you what's on your wrist today uh, I am wearing a Paragon, yeah. So I have I have a prototype where the hands aren't as good as they should be, but that's okay for me. <laughs> uh, I don't want to go back and spend another two days finishing them, uh, but that's what I get to wear every day, which is a nice nice perk of the job, you could say.
0: Bradley, where else can people find out about you and what you're up to on social?
1: Yeah, uh, so I have a Instagram, that's where I post the most, and then I also have a Facebook, which uh, generally just mirrors the content of my Instagram. But um, I, I tend to post a lot of what I'm doing in the workshop if people want to follow along. And then I'm also going to have uh, some emails that go out every once in a while if anyone's interested to see any bigger milestones that I'm I'm into with, uh, with the business.
0: Brad, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Adams I really appreciate it.
1: That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on.
0: Cast. Hey, what's happening out there, everybody? This is Lawrence Ross, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my podcast, The Lawrence Ross Show. Egomaniac. It's a two-hour weekly exploration into my mind. I also do sketches, celebrity impersonations. You're out of order! And I also do song parodies. Not too shabby for a blind guy. No, no, are you visually impaired, but you are geographically impaired. New episodes are released every Friday. Check it out on your favorite podcasting platform or listen to it here on Society 13 on
1: ElectroCast.